I'm Jorge Salazar with the Texas Advanced Computing Center. Using supercomputers, scientists are just starting to design proteins that self-assemble to combine and resemble life-giving molecules like hemoglobin. Hemoglobin molecules in red blood cells transport oxygen by changing their shape. Four copies of the same protein and hemoglobin open and close like flower petals, structurally coupled to respond to each other. The science team from the University of Texas at Austin and the University of Michigan made a flower-like structured molecule by supercharging proteins, which means they changed the subunits of proteins called amino acids to give them an overall artificially high positive or negative charge. The scientists first reported their findings in January of 2019 in the journal Nature Chemistry. The scientists say their methods could be applied to useful technologies such as pharmaceutical targeting, artificial energy harvesting, smart sensing and building materials, and more. On the podcast to talk more about their research are Jens Glaser and Vyas Rabasubramani of the University of Michigan and Anna Simon of UT Austin. Doctors Glaser, Rabasubramani, and Simon, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank, thank you. you. So what are the main findings of your study that was published in January of 2019 in the journal Nature Chemistry on what you've called supercharged protein assembly? So what we found in a nutshell was that, well, basically, I guess moving, I guess stepping back for a minute, something that proteins do that's really important is they interact with other proteins and form other materials with different proteins. A lot of this is interacting with other copies of themselves. And this is important for two main reasons. The first is that it allows a structural coupling between two different copies of proteins. For a lot of reasons, it's important for these proteins to be able to talk to each other, for one copy of a protein to know what another copy of the same protein is doing and experiencing. And if you think about it, there isn't really a way for proteins to do that other than to be, I guess, like touching each other. So... These protein assemblies, as they're called, are physically coupled, so there's one protein next to another one. And so if one protein changes shape, the other one will know that its neighbor is changing shape, I guess, to anthropomorphize them a bit. And then um, it'll be able to respond to that. And that's how we can get kind of like all or nothing responses. Like, for example, hemoglobin is able to take oxygen through the bloodstream, deliver oxygen where it's needed, because it's composed of four copies of the same molecule. And they all um, change between their oxygen bound versus not bound conformation. So they pick up oxygen and release it in an all or nothing fashion, which the math works out such that there's a sharper transition than there otherwise would be between hemoglobin being bound to oxygen versus not bound. And then another thing that these molecules do, um, that molecules that are, I guess, connected do, is they make materials, like they make up structural scaffolding, they make up cell membranes like all the important kind of physical material properties of what cells do. So anyway, we found, so being able to make these molecules um, that are connected in different ways is a technological goal that a lot of people for years have been trying to do. And we found that by taking proteins that are not normally connected, they don't normally interact with each other, um, or they interact in a way that's not really useful or helpful, we can make them copies that are either highly positively or highly negatively charged and combining the positively negatively charged copies we can make the proteins assemble into very specific structured assemblies yeah maybe i can specify a little bit on that we basically exploited a very 
well-known and basic principle from, from nature, namely that opposite charges attract when always when there's plus and a minus, they like to combine. Uh, in that sense, we uh, extended this approach to uh, not only single charges, but, but entire protein molecules, which we know from the basis of life. So Anna and, uh, synthesized these uh, two copies of GFP molecule, which is a green fluorescent protein that comes from a very well-known organism, Aquaria victoria, that's also known as jellyfish. And they found that uh, when they mix these charged variants of green fluorescent protein, that they get structures. And not only some structure, but really highly uh, ordered structures. And that was a real surprise. What is supercharging? What does that mean? So what it means is that these proteins, they naturally don't really have a positive charge or negative charge. They're more or less neutral. So we took this um, starting protein and we changed some of the amino acids so that for one of the proteins, the protein would overall have an artificially high positive charge. And for the other protein, it would have an artificially high negative charge. So it's like kind of like they're normally not charged and now they have extra charges on them or like an extra amount of charge, so it's supercharged. Could you speak to some of the computational challenges you faced in modeling these interactions of the supercharged protein? This entire research took place over an extended time, of course, and it took us over a year to figure out actually how this structure, this beautiful structure, flower-like structure that Dr. Simon mentioned, actually is arranged. Initially, we had a vague idea of, of how it would look like, basically like a stacked arrangement, a stacked octamer with proteins sitting at different positions. And that's what the status of these moderate resolution experiments was. The uh, experimental collaborators, and Simon, they turned to us and asked us if we were able to maybe refine their measurements and help them understand how the uh, protomer configuration, that is the arrangement, would actually be predicted from a computer simulation. And what they gave us was this initial guess where the proteins sat on different positions, but they couldn't tell whether a specific position was occupied by a positively charged or by a negatively charged protein. And within a little time, we had to um, come up with a model that was complex enough to describe the physics of these uh, as charged green fluorescent proteins and represent all their, their atomistic details. Yet that it was efficient enough to allow us to simulate this on a, uh, on a realistic time scale. And when we went about it, we initially thought that maybe if we include all the details in this model, uh, then what took us over a year to get a single simulation out of the computer, however fast it was. And so we realized that we needed a kind of reduced resolution model without uh, sacrificing any of the important details of the interactions between the proteins. And that's how we used a patchy shape model where uh, the shape of the protein is exactly represented by a molecular surface. It's just like the one that's actually also um, measured from the, or from the crystallographic structure of the protein and started with electrical charges on the atomic positions so that uh, with these charges, uh, we had, a, had an interaction between the otherwise uh, strictly um, repulsive shape of that molecule. And with this kind of simplified model, which would maybe be too simplified for any very, very detailed interaction of ligands with a binding pocket or something like that, but just enough detail for these complex formation studies that we intended to do. Diaz uh, Ramasabramani <laughs> studied a series of these models to see whether they were stable. And kind of we were disappointed that when we got back our simulation results. So, so we tried everything to make them efficient and, and detailed, but none of the structures that we tested out of the four or six structures it actually turned out to be 
stable in a promising way. So so we were left there and, and kind of did not know if we contributed anything uh, to the study, except that we tested that they did not really distinguish uh, themselves instability between these candidate structures. So this is Vyas. I think, like what Dr. Glaser said, the starting point for these simulations is usually a representation of your system in terms of all of its atoms, right? Normally, you try and perform a simulation with as much detail as possible in the hopes that uh, you can extract extremely detailed information about the process by which something comes together, right? So in this case, uh, you have these proteins. They're made up of, uh, as Dr. Simon said, the little building blocks that are amino acids, which in turn are made up of atoms. And so there's this really nice hierarchical structure to each protein, and then here we have an extra layer, which is that we're studying lots of proteins trying to come together. And so trying to, to simulate something at that level of complexity ends up being almost impossible on reasonable timescales. As Jens mentioned, you know, we were talking about things that would take over a year to give us anything useful. And so the first iteration of all of our simulations was something that was highly simplified and tried to explain a lot of very complex assembly phenomena, the stuff that they were seeing in experiments from this extremely simplified model. And essentially our initial results were that we could identify sort of false positives or false negatives, but it was almost impossible to give predictive models at this level. What really helped us turn this around and improve what we were able to get out of our simulations was sort of the cryo-EM data. It was a higher resolution microscopic image of our protein that let us really get more information about how the different proteins in our structure were interacting with each other, how they were positioned relative to each other. And with that information, we were able to inform our model a little bit more. So we were be able to be a little bit more intelligent about what information we could provide to our simulations. And that's really what helped us find, you know, the optimal configuration to put into these simulations, which then helped us validate sort of the stability arguments we were making and hopefully going forward, make predictions about uh, ways that we can destabilize this or, or modify the structure. One thing, uh, this is Jens, uh, one thing that should be emphasized perhaps is that we were able to find structures that were definitely not stable because they didn't stand out among themselves. Uh, and we found the structure that the experimentalists found to be stable also in simulation. So that told us that something about the simulation actually um, we did right and, and that we could distinguish between uh, those structures that would form in the experiment and, and those structures that would not form. So we feel like we contributed a little mosaic stone to this paper, but maybe a more promising model going forward to actually really um, investigate these different uh, pathways of biomaterial formation that we can potentially study with this improved model going forward. Would you speak to the resources that you used, the computational resources? I believe you went to exceed the extreme science and engineering discovery environment to get help with this problem and exceed provide scientists with hardware, software, and also some expertise to use the high performance computing resources. Would you speak to what you used from exceed in this study and how it helped you overcome some of these challenges? Sure, so this is Vyas. As I said, these sorts of simulations um, in the all atom case are extremely complicated. So we tried to develop the simpler model, but the reality is that no matter what you do, proteins are still gonna be pretty complicated. And in order to do any sort of calculation on the scale that we wanted, you need lots of compute power. So in our case, what we were trying to do was basically take the proteins, start them out looking like something, and essentially run time forward and see 
how stable that initial configuration works um, was. But in order to do that, we needed to constantly calculate things like forces between proteins, uh, how much they were accelerating or things like that. And so that's kind of a standard method for doing these simulations. In our case, we tried to do something different um, in order to speed up our ability to make predictions from this, which was that essentially instead of uh, simulating all the sort of detailed physics that we care about, we tried to use some sort of probabilistic model that would tell us something about stability. But even then, we can't circumvent doing sort of the physics calculations involved in determining like the forces in our system, or at least the energies in our system. And so the calculations that we needed to do were still on the orders of 100 squared or 1,000 squared at every single instant of time that we were interested in. And so what we used Exceed for was to basically take these huge systems where you have lots of different pieces interacting with each other and calculate all of this at once so that when you start moving your system forward through some semblance of time, you could get an idea for how it was going to evolve on somewhat real-time scales. If you tried to do the same sort of simulation that we did on a laptop, it would have taken months, if not a year, in order to really approach understanding whether or not some sort of structure would be stable. And so for us, being able to use Exceed, where you could use essentially 48 cores, so 48 compute units all at once to make these calculations highly parallel, we would have been doing this much slower. Can yeah. I add to that? Yes. So, this is Jens. so um, maybe it helps also clarifying that the method is a little bit less based on time than it is on the actual configurations of the protomer that it takes when we do these simulations. So we miss out on something that is like the actual time stepping of these uh, protomers in simulation, but we gain the advantage that we can explore much larger steps and much larger movements they make in our simulations through very refined algorithms that we use. And so here, the Skylake cores of the Stampy 2 supercomputer were actually instrumental in achieving the performance that was necessary to compute these electrostatic interactions that act between the oppositely charged proteins in an efficient manner. And the availability of the uh, Stampy 2 supercomputer was just at the right point in time for us to uh, perform these simulations. If I might add one other thing to what Jens just said, part of the reason that the sort of different method was important is the fact that we weren't very interested, at least at this stage, in trying to understand the full process by which the structure comes together. There are lots of interesting questions having to do with the process by which something comes together. But what we were interested in is really, will it come together at all? And so that allowed us to make some, as Yen said, use sort of different methods that emphasize different things than sort of the time evolution that we were talking about. I mean, that must have felt exciting to see that something was really happening. If you Right. You know, if you try and do this sort of simulation as we did in sort of a more real-time sense, then you get pretty bored pretty fast because all you see is things wiggling about for a very long time without anything interesting happening. And using these sort of advanced techniques, we were able to actually kind of kickstart our system into telling us what we wanted to know. And so if you watch those simulations, like you said, you'd actually be able to see things happening and know uh, relatively quickly, thanks to these Exceed computers off the bat, whether or not something interesting was happening or not. Uh, leading up to this work, you uh, your team used some other Exceed resources as well at the San Diego Supercomputer Center. Initially, we were using Comet, and the Comet systems are 
uh, designed somewhat differently in the sense that the individual compute nodes, so the, the big units of compute on that system, are a bit smaller, but they're easier to access in large quantities. So when we were first figuring out you know, what kind of model to use and whether the sort of simplified model would give us reasonable results, Comet was a great place to try these simulations because we were able to run smaller scale simulations where we could get a large number of them through so we could test a number of different simulations to see which approach was giving us good results. The need to move to Stampede really came about because essentially the sort of parallel algorithms we were using to run our computation required these really big fat nodes, so nodes with lots of different cores on them. And as I mentioned previously, the Skylake nodes on Stampede were ideal for this because each of them comes with 48 cores. And so once we sort of sized up our systems and increased the complexity, and also once we needed to run these for longer compute hour times, it became necessary to sort of switch. So Comet was a really nice sort of test bed for the things we were doing. Uh, and then Stampede was the place to go when we needed to get these um, sort of larger scale simulations done. How does this research relate to ordinary people, to non-scientists? One of the really fascinating and notable achievements of this is that we were able to make these proteins into structures without having to do rigorous design to make a specific structure. So like we were able to engineer molecules that we thought would interact without necessarily having to understand how that would happen. And so normally, or so now, like making proteins that interact artificially is really hard. It takes a lot of very, people can do it and people have done amazing, other people have done amazing things with it, but it really requires a lot of specialized techniques and understanding. With this, we think it's an easier way to build the kind of materials that Dr. Glazer was talking about that have like the really exciting synthetic properties without necessarily having to spend, you know, so much time on design and without having to necessarily know exactly how they're going to come together beforehand too. Um, so we think that that will really, um, really accelerate the ability to engineer synthetic materials and for discovery and exploration of these um, nanostructured protein materials. What's the next step for this research? From the experimental standpoint, I guess the big picture standpoint is see as testing other pairs of charged proteins to oppositely supercharged proteins, as we call them, um, and see and see if they assemble the same way. Better understanding the physics behind how these molecules are assembling, like why they're forming the structures that they do, and that's that's a lot on the computational side. I'm sure that Dr. Glazer and uh, Mr. Ramasubramani will be able to um, will speak to that um, in more detail as well. And yeah. then also using these materials, assembling these materials, not um, just single protomers, but assembling the protomers onto protomers to make larger structures um, that are ordered with specific properties that are new and different and interesting and understanding how we can do that. So we want to develop more realistic models of understanding how these structures form an experiment using supercomputer simulations. And we want to continuously push these methods of self-assembly simulation to predict actually what the experimentalists will see. And so what kind of is the 
theorists dream when they work with an experimentalist is that they're able to anticipate what the experimentalist will see when they do the experiment. And, and that's something that we would really like to push on the level of computer simulations so that we can go um, from the stage of understanding what has occurred in the experiment to a stage of predicting the interactions that are there and predicting the uh, structures that will form and using this to achieve interactions and structures that we really want to have so that we can go to the design aspect of these things from the why to the how. With the how, it becomes a matter of uh, realizing this in terms of frequent feedback between the experimental and the theoretical prediction. So we want to basically improve our pathway predictions for the structure formation to the level of detail that they become uh, quantitative to make routine predictions of protein self-assembly possible. You've been listening to Jens Glaser and Vyas Rabasubramani of the University of Michigan and Anna Simon of UT Austin with the Texas Advanced Computing Center, Amore Salazar.